political scandals, internet memes, and even a presidential impeachment trial. There's no shortage of Supreme Court news to talk about this week. Welcome to The Term, a podcast by Law360 to keep you up to speed about the nation's top court and the justices that preside there. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court for Law360, and joining me from our New York studio is co-host in Law360, editor-at-large, Natalie Rodriguez. How's it going, Natalie? Hey, Jimmy. So it's a busy week, um, and we've got a lot to cover from this week's oral arguments, including what happened at that Bridgegate uh, scandal case and how OK Boomer made it into the court transcripts. But there's uh, more action happening right now. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. In just a few hours after we're recording here, uh, Chief Justice Roberts is going to make the long trek across First Street um, from the Supreme Court building to head over to the Senate, where he will be, you know, swearing in, taking, well, first of all, swearing in himself and also swearing in the members of the Senate for the upcoming impeachment trial of uh, President Donald Trump. So, yeah, he, you know, he's, he's only the third, the third justice really to, to be sworn in for, for this kind of role, right? That's right. There's only been three so far, and uh, I don't know that he expected this to happen when he, you know, agreed to become the chief justice. But you, you, you got to imagine it wasn't like far off because that is one of the constitutional duties of the chief justice. So he'll be the presiding officer, kind of making decisions when the two side, the two parties, basically. Um, have disagreements, right? Well, yes and no. So he will be, you know, nominally he's in charge of a lot of things about procedure, ruling on evidence, motions, objections, et cetera, et cetera. But kind of functionally, he doesn't really have that much power. He's more of like a figurehead because under the Senate rules, you know, he can, anything he does can be reversed essentially by a simple majority. So I don't know that he's going to be, you know, coming out, you know, swinging with all of these big controversial rulings like, you know, the calling witnesses or what have you. Well, it'll be interesting to see what kind of questions he ends up having to rule on. Um, and also interesting, I think, just to see how he handles the impeachment process on top of, like, everything else with <laughs> happening at the I Supreme know. Court. I know. There's no shortage of controversy for this guy. I mean, he just can't seem to catch a break. It's well, <laughs> He always talks about how, you know, whenever you hear Justice Roberts give a, you know, a public address or something he talks about the importance of the you know the the court's reputation in the public eye so i think a lot of court watchers kind of suspect that you know his real caution around you know how people perceive the court is gonna you know encourage him to take kind of a more background role in this i mean that's what chief justice uh, william rehnquist did in 1999 for the um, impeachment trial of president clinton you know he you know famously was very deferential of uh you know, to the parliamentarian, and you know, if if it was a anything of, of significance, he would put it up for a vote before the senators. He wouldn't even rule on it. Um, so I think we'll probably see Roberts do the same thing. I mean, you know, he undoubtedly will you know keep a uh, a tight ship going. He's no stranger to ba- dealing with a lot of battling egos when <laughs> you know he's overseeing some of the Supreme Court arguments. So I don't think he's going to have a problem like cutting off anyone, but. Uh, in terms of the big, you know, significant substantive stuff, I just don't know that he's going to make too much news. I mean, one last thing to, to kind of final thought here was Rehnquist's famous quote about his impeachment role was, you know, I did nothing in particular and I did it very well. <laughs> so I think Roberts <laughs> is probably going to follow a similar line. Awesome. Well, we'll see also if uh, he ends up getting a, a, a fancy new robe the way Rehnquist did for for the impeachment. <laughs> you know, I think he might break from precedent on the robe question. We were talking earlier about maybe he'll just, you know, go out, come no, out with I a Canadian Supreme plain. Court Santa Claus robe. Uh, that oh would, my gosh. That would make some headlines. <laughs> 
Um, for anyone yeah. who anyone interested in, in in understanding what Jimmy just said, just Google uh, Canadian Supreme Court. Please do and, and look so at the great. images. It's so uh, great. I like them. They're festive. I feel I, I like the color red. So <laughs> do they have them in the summertime? I mean, is it a year round thing? It just seems like it's very. Yeah, very Christmassy. Anyway, all right, let's get to it. Yes, moving on. So we had oral arguments this week in the Bridgegate case we talked about last week. Um, uh, and the justices seemed really receptive to the arguments from two former Governor Chris Christie aides who are appealing their fraud convictions from that infamous scandal um, involving bridge lane closings. For those who, who weren't listening, you know, Kelly versus U.S., it's an appeal of these fraud charges. Um from two former aides who allegedly made up a traffic study to explain away why they closed the the two lanes on the bridge. Um, And it was later found out that it was actually to hurt a political rival in New Jersey. Um, And the case largely centers on whether or not, uh, now the case before the Supreme Court largely centers on whether or not the prosecutors overreached in their use of fraud charges. Yeah, and it seems like the the justices, once again, you know, we saw this a couple years ago, but once again, they're a little bit skeptical of the prosecution's, you know, use of this, you know, kind of general anti-fraud, anti-corruption statute to go over something that, you know, in the defendant's view was like a kind of a political action that they were authorized to, to take, namely this this traffic study. So it wasn't great that they did this, but was it criminal? That's the whole question, right? Exactly. And Chief Justice Roberts, I think, uh, you know, said it best when he said, like, it can be a hard line to draw. But th- they did seem to be listening uh, they, d- they did seem to, to be open to the arguments that, you know, while what the two aides did was in no way great <laughs> and, you know, was, uh, you know, had bad intentions and was improper. Um, it wasn't necessarily illegal in terms of these fraud charges, you know, and the main argument from the prosecution that the, the justice seemed to be open to was that, you know, they did bad, but you can't use these federal fraud laws to deal with them. And, that, and that's, you know, that's in line with uh, a lot of the uh, recent precedent cases from from the court, including a 2016 case not that long ago, uh, where the justices unanimously vacated and remanded um, a corruption conviction of former uh, Virginia Governor Bob McDonnell. And it was it was it was a very similar case, you know, where the argument was that the the prosecutors were trying to use in McDonald's case a bribery charge um, and, and trying to stretch it to fit around what actually happened. Yeah, so that was the case of uh, Virginia's Governor Bob McDonald. He had, you know, received some pretty expensive gifts for from a constituent. I think one was a Rolex, another one was like a check for his daughter's wedding, and you know, in return, he had allegedly done the the constituent's company some favors. So I think that was another case where it was like when official acts become corruption. You know, where's the line to draw between those two things? And I think that's what Chief Justice Roberts was picking up on a little bit, right? Yeah, and, and, and Justice um, Ginsburg was also, I think, really trying to get at that, um, you know, asking about kind of where the line is between the motive and, and, and diverting for personal use, um, you know, and, and she and, and, and Justice Alito also, he, he seemed to be a little bit stuck on the fact that there was a loss of money for the federal government and for, for taxpayers because of these closures, even if it wasn't obtained 
by the two convicted aides. Like the money wasn't like the decision wasn't made to to, to kind of line their pockets, but there was still a loss of money. So, so you know, I, I, they did. There was a bit of a struggle with kind of that line of like where where does it go from just like you know impropriety to federal fraud. Um, Alito also had, um, I think, some issues with the prosecutor's arguments um, that it was turned into a crime in part by one of the aides lacking authorization. Um, and it seems that lack of authority was an explicit part of the jury finding. So, so he had, uh, you know, he, he said something along the lines, you know, uh, you know, I've never seen a criminal case where we're asked to defer to a jury's finding on something that the jury didn't find. So, um, you know, I, I, I think the prosecution's going to have a, a bit of a hard time on this one. Yeah, it's interesting to hear Alito's thoughts on this one because he has a couple connections to the case, just being from New Jersey, but also you know being the former U.S. attorney for uh, in the state. So <laughs> he probably has a lot of opinions about how a prosecution should go about doing its business. But yeah, that's that's a. Pretty helpful summary, uh, Natalie. So let's move into Wednesday's case, uh, Bab versus Wilkie. This was this was a kind of a low-profile case about a federal age discrimination law that you know actually generated a surprising number of headlines on Wednesday, and that was pretty much exclusively because Roberts, Ch- Chief Justice John Roberts, brought the OK Boomer meme to the Supreme Court. Finally, I know we were all just waiting for it to happen. It was inevitable, I suppose. So uh, how did we get there? How, how did this happen? <laughs> Yeah, how did this happen? So, okay, so the case deals with the provision of the Age Discrimination in Employment Act. Um, and that provision uh, basically bars uh, age discrimination for federal employees. And so the actual language of the statute is that, you know, any employment action, whether it be adverse, you know, a promotion or something like that, it shall be made free from any discrimination based on age. So that's pretty broad language, right? So the question in this case is whether federal workers who are suing under this provision, you know, those that claim they had, you know, experienced some kind of age bias, Um, Do they have to show that the adverse action, whether it was not being hired or something like that, was explicitly because of um, their age? As in, if it weren't for their age, they would have been, you know, for instance, hired, promoted, etc. Or is it just that they have to show that their age was a motivating factor? It factored into the decision somehow, but they don't necessarily have to prove in court that it was the determining factor. So that's kind of what this dispute's about. There's a Department of Veterans Affairs uh, employee, she's a pharmacist, um, who is claiming to have been retaliated against because of her age. Um, and so there's this circuit split, and there's a lot of confusion in the lower courts over you know, which is the standard of proof essentially necessary. So fast forward to Wednesday's <laughs> arguments. And so you know, Justice Roberts seems to be concerned uh, a little bit about this motivating factor test that it you know it need only factor into the decision at some point it doesn't need to be the sole cause and so he says let's just say to the you know babs attorney says let's say in the course of a weeks-long process the hiring person who is younger says you know okay boomer once to the applicant um is that actionable and so him and uh, i cannot imagine someone saying okay boomer during an application process like be terrible i'm (laughs) sorry (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I could envision some Silicon Valley tech startup where you have some young whippersnapper millennial hiring boss who's like, oh, oh you don't know how to do this? Okay, boomer, or whatever. But anyway, um, so, well, that was kind of what Martinez was saying. Uh, Roman Martinez was uh, Bab's attorney, uh, the petitioner in the case, and he says, you know, there are, you know, it can't just be a stray comment, but like, 
you know, if if this is part of a pattern or it factored into the decision and it was evidence of some kind of age bias, you know, sure. And so Roberts, you know, pushes back and he says, I just don't want this to be like a regulation of speech in the workplace. I guess he's envisioning a world where, you know, people can no longer call each other lazy millennial snowflakes and, uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I can, see, I can see the concern, like, you know, a stray comment you know, resulting in a major lawsuit, right? But I, I also see the point of, like, if it's a repetitive pattern, if there's, like, l- several instances right. of this, you know, proving that it's, like, that age discrimination is the m- major factor, like, that's hard, you know? But I, I think could imagine, if yeah. I could see, I could see kind of something in the middle about, you know, a pattern. Uh, but right. that's a tough one. Yeah, I mean, you could, exactly, a, a pattern of, you know, age discrimination, however it manifests itself, is still a pattern of age discrimination. Um, and it, But at the same time, um, you know, U.S. Solicitor General uh, Noel Francisco, who was arguing the case on behalf of the Department of Veterans Affairs, obviously they're defending this lawsuit, um, you know, he's advocating the position to the Supreme Court that it should be this but-for standard of causation. You know, age needs to be the determining factor in an adverse employee action. Uh, but he ran into some strong headwinds as well. I mean, just as Samuel Alito in particular picks up on this language, you know, in the statute that, that says that, you know, it shall be free from any discrimination based on age. And, you know, he, he, he tells the Solicitor General he's having a terrible time <laughs> fitting his interpretation of the provision to its text. So that's not something you want to hear from, you know, a pretty conservative member of the court if you're uh, Francisco, especially in an age bias case where the liberal justices seem to be pretty sympathetic to the petitioner in the case. So that's not really a good sign. Yeah, that's got to be a bit of a little gut punch while you're, while you're at oral arguments. Yeah, well, it seems like... You know, that may end up being the more significant line. Maybe it didn't generate as many headlines. But yeah, Justice Kagan, you know, she she was another one that, that seemed to be going particularly hard at um, uh, Solicitor General Noel Francisco. She says, you know, there are kind of two kinds of statutes when we're talking about these age discrimination cases. There are some that actually explicitly spell out the but-for causation standard and others that just say things like this. And the fact that it doesn't have that language that we've seen in many of the statutes that do have the but-for causation standard, why don't we just assume that it's a motivating factor thing? It, why isn't it as simple as that? So I, I think kind of maybe in the similar vein as the prosecution in the Bridgegate case, we could be seeing uh, the federal government being having, you know, kind of a difficult time. Um, but this one, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. And we'll see uh, also next week. I know, uh, you know, kind of moving moving on a, a little bit, we'll, we'll, we're looking towards a, of a short argument week uh, because of the holiday. But there's at least a notable case on Wednesday called Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue, which really examines the role of public dollars in private education. And I think could be a big church versus state um, case to, to be looking at. Uh, the case is challenging a Montana rule that prohibits tax credits for people who give to scholarship fund donations when the money is given to a religious institution. But in, as I think we'll, we'll see see more next week, you know, it, it's turned into just um, this tax credit issue to more of a like, you know, is it okay that Montana's state constitution uh, bars uh, giving to religious institutions? You know, is, is that, you know, does that discriminate uh, unfairly against uh, the freedom of religion? Uh, in the U.S. Constitution. So it's a big case to watch, and we'll be looking into it next week. Um, But I think that's about all the time we have for now. Uh, Thanks so much, Jimmy. 
Yeah, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and our contributing reporter this week, Bill Wickard. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 and the term. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.